0: Some years ago, the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship produced a multimedia slide show with the title Habakkuk. There were five screens used in the production, and the viewer was inundated in a torrent of images. The result sometimes was a kind of disorientation in the wraparound of sign and symbol, Well, that uh, sense of vertigo uh, might be shared by a preacher who tries to do justice to biblical symbolism. We look at the book of Revelation and we have lampstands and stars and scrolls and beasts, trumpets, seals, vials, angels, and uh, they seem to whirl about our heads uh, image on image. And, of course, uh, through the rest of the Bible there are many images. Uh, The church is seen as a flock of sheep. Uh, It's uh, pictured as a marching host. It's seen as a temple, as a field, as a vine, as a pillar. Uh, We even have uh, uh, images that are mixed together. Uh, The church is a building which grows into a holy temple in Christ. You have living stones that are being built together in a living architecture. Uh, The city is pictured as coming from heaven, dressed as a bride. So we get image uh, put upon image, and the whole Bible presents a vast array of images. Now, to preach the Bible and to preach Christ as uh, central in the scriptures, uh, we uh, must reflect on the metaphors that the Bible uses. Uh, We have to understand their meaning if we're to communicate their truth. And we must, uh, in using them, be aware also of their evocative power. Of course, uh, this is sometimes made more difficult uh, by the shift in cultural setting. Uh, Some images that would be immediately apparent in the culture in which the Bible is given uh, are not immediately apparent to us. And therefore, uh, we will need to interpret them as we present them. (coughs) Now, in biblical theology, uh, it's important to uh, grasp the relationship of metaphor and meaning. Uh, It has uh, been pointed out by Paul Ricoeur that uh, a metaphor is really found in a sentence, uh, not uh, in a word. You know, there's a substitution view of metaphor. Uh, The Oxford Dictionary defines metaphor as the figure of speech in which a name or descriptive term is transferred to some object different from, but analogous to, that to which it is properly applicable. Now, this view sees metaphor as the result of substitution. Uh, You may wish to say that a man eats too much. Instead, you say that he is a pig. Since in the context, an affirmation about a man, it's evident that the full sense of pig cannot be meant, the interpreter searches for some secondary or derived use of pig that will fit the content. He finds it in the common association of greedy eating with the pig, and concludes that he's meant to understand that the man is a glutton. Why then did not the communicator say what he meant in the first place? Why require the receptor to do a double take? Well, various reasons may be given. Perhaps the more vivid language will keep the hearer awake. Uh, the, the fleeting vision of uh, the man in question undergoing a Porcine metamorphosis uh, could be mildly entertaining. Or or perhaps the stimulus is more to analysis than to imagination. We like to work puzzles, and uh, the quick solution of this little puzzle uh, makes the hearer a satisfied participant in the language game. In any case, the substitution view focuses on the word and makes a strong case for the definable meaning of metaphorical expressions. At the same time, it's a case against their necessity. We need only to insert the language for which the metaphor is substituted, and we have the meaning uh, without the metaphor. But as has been pointed out by uh, Herbie Reichoff uh, in a book that he's written on, about uh, the function of metaphor in theology, Uh, This understanding of metaphor uh, confuses usage with use. Dictionaries define word usage. They cannot define or describe possible use. The metaphor appears in the use. The terms of a metaphorical statement must carry their normal reference in order for the metaphor to convey its meaning. Indeed, if a term is used separately in a trite metaphor it may acquire an unusual meaning that the dictionary will finally list. Pig, for example, in Webster's Seventh Collegiate Dictionary, has among its definitions one resembling a pig, and slang, an immoral woman. When we use the word pig in one of its possible dictionary meanings, a meaning which has been established by usage, we are no longer speaking metaphorically The metaphor has now faded and we have uh, a direct use of the term. The uh, substitution uh, approach is also uh, made increasingly difficult uh, with more complex uh, metaphors. In so brief a metaphorical expression as he is a tiger, it may seem that the metaphor is entirely in the word. For if another word is substituted, the metaphor may disappear. Uh, To say he is aggressive is not metaphorical. When the metaphor is more complex, the substitution paraphrase becomes more difficult, although not impossible. Uh, The prophet Amos cries, the lion hath roared, who will not fear? And then he proceeds to give a paraphrase. The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy? Amos 3, eight, But the complexity becomes overwhelming when Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he cleanseth it, that it may bear more fruit. The image of the vine, as it is used in the sentence, recalls the prophetic figure of Israel as the vine and God as the vine dresser In Isaiah 5 and uh, Psalm 80, where Israel is called the vine, The adjective true in John can mean real in contrast to symbol or type. It therefore controls our understanding of the metaphorical expression. Jesus is the true Israel and God's care plants and nurtures him. Only as his disciples are united to him are they part of the true Israel of God. As soon as we begin to paraphrase in that way we become aware of how much more is implied. The metaphorical expression relates the father to the son and the disciples to both. The further thought of the life of the branches coming from the vine is also involved in the original expression. We begin to see that the metaphor is not simply a colorful synonym. Rather, it brings together two realms of concepts ...that the rule of language would normally keep distinct. A man cannot be identified with a plant, nor God with a gardener. Uh, The rules of language, however, are not being violated or discarded. If we discard the rules of language altogether, we produce nonsense. And the metaphor must be distinguished from nonsense... ...as well as from non-metaphorical statements... The rules of language are not canceled, but they are, as it were, relaxed for the time being. The openness of a metaphorical statement, the possibility of an expanding interpretation, is a result of this relaxing of the rules. As the metaphor brings together two conceptual realms, we are invited to explore one in terms of the other. So, in the example of Jesus as the vine and the gardener, Uh, we have the the literal vine and gardener, which are the subsidiary subject. And uh, that subsidiary subject of uh, the image that we know of the vine and the gardener uh, becomes a kind of filter through which we see the principal subject, the relation of God to Christ and to us. Now, the principal subject also interacts with the subsidiary subject. The distinction between Christ and his disciples, pushes the hearer to reflect on the distinction between the stem of the vine, to which it is cut back annually, the the sept, and the branches that grow from the stem. Metaphor, then, is not a simple matter of uh, substitution, but it's found in the context of the discourse, not in one word, whether a noun or another part of speech, but uh, the sentence. Now, Paul Ricoeur would push beyond this to consider the place of metaphor in discourse. In the vine and branches example, our interpretation of the metaphor depends not only on the statements quoted above, but on the context of the discourse of Jesus recorded in John's Gospel, and on the universe of discourse that includes the Old Testament background and the use of the metaphor there. That is to say, not only Isaiah 5, but also Psalm 80. Metaphor, then, uh, proposes a redescription of reality. Um, even looking at the discourse context does not adequately account for the function of metaphor. By creating a fictional structure of reference... The metaphor may redescribe reality, and in that way express a poetic truth that stands in tension with the truth of ordinary understanding, in a way that may be compared to the tension in the structure of metaphor itself. Uh, Recur summarizes, and I quote from him: "From this conjunction of fiction and redescription, I conclude that the place of metaphor." its most intimate and ultimate abode is neither the name nor the sentence nor even the discourse but the copula of the verb to be the metaphorical is at once signifies both is not and is like if this is really so we are allowed to speak of metaphorical truth but in, a, in an equally tensive sense of the word truth. This tensive structure of metaphorical language does imply that not all language can be reduced to metaphor, as has sometimes been held. It's been said, for example, that uh, a metaphor is the human method of investigating the universe. And that uh, metaphorical groping describes the movement of the human organism in all its areas of discovery. Uh, We figure the unknown with ourselves. Uh, But, of course, there's a problem here. If everything is metaphorical, uh, then we have no criteria for judging metaphor. If thought is metaphorical, everything is possible. That is, if all thought is metaphorical, everything is possible, everything is permissible, and uh, we would come up with uh, uh, Christianity void of content and uh, merely an ideology. The very fact that metaphorical expression can be made a subject of argument and that sweeping claims can be made for it would seem to show that metaphors do have a place and do not fill the entire horizon of language and thought without an accepted order of reality to which conceptual language refers, the deviation that constitutes the metaphor could not be recognized and the tensive relation of the metaphor would not exist. Now I want to think for a moment about metaphors and models. A particular interest to the theologian and preacher is the relation between metaphor and model some biblical metaphors have been made models in theological discourse. Uh, For example, Avery Dulles, a Roman Catholic theologian, has examined models of the Church in a book by that title, uh, noting that some of these have been drawn directly from Scripture. Following Vatican II, there's been a vigorous discussion among Catholic theologians as to the sense in which the people of God model is to be seen as supplementing or replacing the body of Christ model that had become standard for Roman Catholic ecclesiology. Especially since the publication of Thomas S. Kuhn's uh, book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, the discussion of the role of models in science has spread far beyond the fields of the philosophy and history of science in particular the place of models in theology has become a renewed issue do the metaphors of the church in the bible offer a basis for the elaboration of models that may function in ecclesiology in a way that is similar to the function of models in science now max black sees models as closely related to metaphors there is similarity he says between the use of a model and of a metaphor. And I quote, perhaps, we should say, of a sustained and systematic metaphor. That is, he's suggesting that a model is a a sustained and systematic metaphor. Like metaphors, models in science bring together two separate cognitive domains to produce insight. Models are used in science as instruments for discovery, not just as means for description. At the same time, Black acknowledges differences between models and metaphors. Metaphor is best limited to relatively brief statements while the model is extended and elaborated. The metaphor operates with common sense, excuse me, with commonplace implications, while the model brings into relation with the principal subject a subsidiary subject that is already framed as a well knit theory. Black raises a further possible difference when he points out that a scientific model may be checked for validity. A deductive correspondence cannot be expected, but in principle at least, the goodness of the fit can be investigated apart from the pragmatic test of the fruitfulness in discovery. Recur sees an analogy between models in science and metaphor in poetry. In scientific language, the model is essentially a heuristic instrument that seeks, by means of fiction, to break down an inadequate interpretation and to uh, open the way for a new, more adequate interpretation. With Black, Ricoeur sees the model as an instrument of discovery, using a rational method with its own principles. Further, the scientific model involves a redescription of reality. The model enables us to see that which is to be explained in a different light. There's a danger, of course, that the redescription will be carried too far by adopting a provisional model as the real explanation. Maxwell, uh, uh, scientist Maxwell, first proposed an imaginary fluid as a model to explain an electrical field. He described it as a collection of imaginary properties, including incompressibility. Later, he and others began to speak of ether in a realistic idiom. But the mistake in supposing that ether existed was not a necessary consequence of the model that was used, nor was the original model the hypothesis that such a fluid existed. Uh, I call attention to that you see ether was first projected as a model as a way of viewing an electrical field and then later there were some who supposed that the uh, ether did actually exist uh, so that uh, the model uh, became a source really of misunderstanding uh, recur uh, sees the literary parallel to the scientific model Not in the brief metaphor, but in its extension, the allegory, or tale of fiction. He appeals to Aristotle's analysis of tragedy. Tragic poetry, Aristotle said, is an imitation of human life, mimesis, imitation. But this imitation passes through the creation of a tale, the myth, mythos which has a structure and order not found in the dramas of daily life. The mythos, Rekker suggests, is metaphorical much as a model is. He compares it to the root metaphor of which Black speaks, a master metaphor, an archetype that stands as a model offering a network of organization in terms of which we may gain a new perspective on what we seek to understand, the events of life. The model of the mythos is at the service of the redescription, the mimesis. The imitation is the denotative dimension of the mythos. Uh, that is to say, uh, while when you read in a, a Greek uh, tragedy... Uh, You read uh, the development of the storyline, well, that's the mythos. Uh, That gives order and structure to the description of the experiences of the actors, but the experiences themselves are experiences that we can understand and share with and uh, identify with, and so uh, the experiences of our lives, uh, tragic or otherwise, are then taken up And given a new interpretation, a new way of being seen and understood by their being fitted into the storyline of the mythos. Uh, So uh, it's interesting that Recur would see in literature something that is somewhat analogous uh, to the model in science. Now, of course, Kuhn's argument was that in the development of the history of science, it, uh, uh, study did not go forward by a steady upward gradient. Uh, we didn't, uh, scientists didn't continue just to learn more and more and uh, build on what had been discovered earlier. Uh, rather, uh, he contended, scientific discovery went forward by jumps Uh, That is to say, there would be a model and all scientific discovery would be related to investigations of that model. And then the model would be discarded for a better model uh, when it became too cumbersome to use. Now, of course, a good illustration of that would be Ptolemaic and Copernican uh, astronomy. Uh, Ptolemaic astronomy uh, continued, uh, you might say, long after uh, it should have been abandoned. Uh, But it continued with more and more elaborate uh, mathematical efforts uh, to account for the movement of the planets and the stars on a a, a, a geocentric basis. Uh, But uh, when it was uh, proposed that instead of the planets going, uh, the um, planets and the sun revolving around the earth, the earth revolved around the sun, uh, that was a whole new model. And then, of course, that gave rise uh, to a tremendous amount of further discovery and investigation. Well, Kuhn argues that all scientific research uh, requires a a kind of model uh, which is uh, made the base uh, for uh, that uh, which uh, develops. Uh, Ricœur uses the parallel of metaphor with model to bring to light a further implication of metaphor the concept of metaphorical truth. He presents this not only as a defensible, but a necessary implication of metaphor springing from its redescription of reality. At the same time, he clearly shows the tension that must exist between the metaphorical redescription and the description that it replaces or seeks to disclose. Now, in the vast range of metaphorical expressions presenting the relation of God with his people, the concept of metaphorical truth seems to meet us at every hand. The redescription of reality that shows God, then Christ, as the shepherd and us as the sheep provides such rich insight that we often lose sight of its metaphorical structure. Then we learn, for example, that oriental shepherds were known to sleep across the only opening of a stone sheepfold where wood for a door was not available. Jesus' statement, I am the door, after he's identified himself as the good shepherd, suddenly acquires fresh metaphorical power because we have come to appreciate afresh the the information of what might be called the filter, the secondary subject through which we see the original subject. Very well then, uh, whatever uh, we may... uh, Conclude about the way in which a metaphor uh, conveys meaning, uh, we are uh, faced with the importance of metaphorical structures, especially major metaphors, what we might describe as model metaphors uh, in the Bible. And uh, the uh, discussion to which I alluded a moment ago about the doctrine of the Church uh, at Vatican II is a good example of this. Uh, the argument being, uh, should the model of the church as the body of Christ, which had become standard in Roman Catholic Orthodox uh, Orthodoxy, uh, Thomistic theology, if uh, this image of the body of Christ is to be uh, supplanted by another master model, uh, the model of the people of God, and uh, you can see that there would be good many implications in that. The body of Christ uh, image, the way way in which it was used in Roman Catholic theology, uh, was uh, in the setting, in the context of a sacramental uh, view, of course. It was because of the uh, sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the the Eucharist, uh, that the body of Christ uh, model was uh, uh, seized upon. And the uh, unity of the church uh, was interpreted in terms of the sacramental unity. And therefore, to substitute for it, the people of God model uh, would give a different cast to the structure of Roman Catholic theology. Now, uh, Rykoff, in the book that I mentioned, uh, argues that, strictly speaking, uh, Roman Catholic theology ought not to make either model uh, supreme. Uh, That uh, the definition of theology ought not to be in metaphorical terms, but in, cons- in uh, abstract conceptual statements. Uh, now, you'll notice in that connection that the Westminster Confession, uh, where it uh, defines the Church, uh, defining it as visible and as invisible, uh, you'll notice that if you look at the Westminster Confessional Statement, uh, you will see that uh, it... Uh, joins the various images of the church in the Bible uh, to those two headings. It selects the images that seem to be most akin to the thought of the church as visible on the one hand, and then it selects images that it thinks speak of the church as invisible on the other hand. So the method that the um, uh, Westminster Confession uses uh, is not to ignore the metaphors of the Bible but rather to provide the direct uh, statement, the the definitive statement in a general conceptual framework, and then to add on the metaphors so that they uh, uh, will not be ignored. Now, you see, when we consider topology, we're thinking about a specialized use of uh, the metaphorical. You're thinking of that which points uh, beyond itself. And as we've seen, it's progressiveness in the history of redemption that gives us the foundation for uh, the the, the typological structure. In other words, what I'm proposing is that we have the plot of the history of redemption. And uh, to use uh, uh, recurs statements about Aristotle, now don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, but you see, Aristotle is saying uh, the myth of uh, uh, the myths that are taken from Greek tradition uh, provide the storyline. And then, uh, within the framework of that storyline, uh, you have uh, the experiences of uh, daily life, uh, the, the, the mimesis, the, uh, the remembrances, the recollections. Uh, th- that uh, call to mind our own experiences. Now you see, what I would do is to set off, set over against that the structure of tupas. How tupas uh, differs from mythos. Uh, it is, uh, it is not a matter of indifference to topology as to whether the events occurred or not. Because the type is not a mere metaphor. And the storyline of the Bible is not fiction. It is not like a myth which just gives us a connection uh, under which we can subsume description of experiences. Now, if we approach the Bible in a moralistic way rather than in a typological way, uh, then we can fall into that trap. Uh, Then, you see, there will be no difference in fundamental principle uh, between the way in which uh, a citizen of Athens uh, could identify with um, uh, a play uh, by uh, Euripides or... Uh, a a play by a tragic uh, poet, Uh, there'd be no difference between the way in which a citizen of Athens could identify with the actors in a play uh, and the way in which we would identify with the experiences of Abraham or David or uh, of uh, one of the other figures from the Old Testament. And what I'm uh, trying to propose is uh, that that's not the case that the Bible does not give simply a storyline which could just as well be fictional and then experiences with which we can identify, experiences uh, that uh, call to our mind, experiences that we ourselves have had or experiences that we might have. Uh, You see, uh, we, we cannot view the matter Uh, as though that's all that happens uh, in uh, biblical accounts. That the storyline could just as well be fictional and uh, our identification with the experiences uh, could be just as legitimate. No, that's not the case because the biblical accounts are historical. And therefore... Uh, our experience does indeed conform to experience of Old Testament saints, but it does so only in the central structure of faith in relation to God's grace. It isn't just that we have kindred experiences, it is rather that God is doing a great work of redemption. The storyline is not a fiction The storyline is the reality of what God is doing and is continuing to do in Jesus Christ. And therefore, our identification with Old Testament saints is always identification at the crucial point of faith. You see, they are looking to God. They are looking to the Lord as they uh, have these uh, things happen to them. And God leads them in various ways that are preparing us to understand the meaning of his own work. So that we don't just simply relate to them as having common experiences, but we relate to them in the way in which their experiences are presented by God himself in his revelation as part of the unfolding of his plan of salvation. Well, how then do we deal uh, with um, uh, biblical uh, figures? You remember how in john sixteen twenty five uh, the, the disciples say to Jesus, "Now you speak plainly, and Jesus talks about the plainness of his revelation that will be given. And scholars have differed about uh, what Jesus means there. Does he mean the plainness of the period in which we live, or does he mean the plainness uh, of the direct perception that we will have when we will know as we are known. Well, uh, I think the right answer to that is uh, it's not an either-or, it's both-and. That is to say, in the fullness of the revelation in Jesus Christ, uh, we are brought to understand things plainly, things that were concealed, things that were not known are now made known. This, of course, is Paul's doctrine of the mystery, as he talks about it in uh, Uh, Ephesians. uh, The mystery of the Gospels, it's revealed to him. Uh, But uh, even though there are those things that we now know, it's still true that we see through a glass darkly. We don't yet see face to face. So there is still a greater plainness that's going to come and uh, which we're going to be able to uh, uh, enjoy. How then do we interpret uh, these uh, biblical uh, metaphors? Well, of course... um, we examine them and seek to paraphrase what we are being taught uh, in the metaphorical and symbolical language. Uh, the uh, paraphrase uh, recognizes that the metaphor has meaning, has denotative meaning uh, in its context. and we recognize that the subordinate subject, that which becomes illustrative for us, for example, the passage of Israel through the the Red Sea, uh, we we recognize uh, that uh, this subordinate subject becomes the vehicle for us looking at the principal subject, the power of God to save and to redeem. And of course, uh, in that case, as in many cases, Uh, you can see that the subordinate subject has been um, uh, qualified uh, by the plan and purpose of God. Uh, uh, Sometimes uh, by a direct command of God, sometimes by uh, indirect uh, providential uh, provisions. Uh, For example, it's God who says that the trumpet is to be blown around the walls of Jericho. And obviously, uh, since in uh, uh, at Mount Sinai the trumpet's blown to announce the presence of God, uh, since uh, the trumpet was blown on the Day of Atonement to announce uh, the proclamation of the favor of God, uh, since the trumpet uh, therefore announces the very presence of God or the decrees of God, well then, when the trumpet is blown at Jericho, it becomes an anticipation of the last trump. becomes an participation of the announcement of the presence of God in judgment. Well now there's a case, there's an instance where God uh, qualifies the what we could speak of as the subordinate subject uh, of the metaphor. Uh, see there's kind of a model here, a model metaphor. and the subordinate subject is structured by God's uh, will so that it better serves as a, uh, a metaphor. Uh, for the principal subject, which is the announcement of His power and glory and uh, uh, His coming, ultimately, in judgment. Now, of course, at at other times, uh, this is where it gets a little more difficult for us. We don't have much trouble recognizing the symbolic force of the blast on the trumpets, but uh, it's a little more difficult when there's some element in the story itself. In God's providential ordering of the events themselves, that enable us uh, to see uh, that it is uh, the the very um, uh, wisdom of God that is being uh, prepared and manifested uh, obviously uh, the, the two are um, interrelated <clears throat> the, uh, We're told, for example, that before Israel crossed the Red Sea, there was a great wind that blew, and maybe that was part of the means that God used. Uh, the, the, they, they walked through the Red Sea uh, as on dry ground. They went, walked through dry shod. They were told details of how it worked out. And uh, this is all part of the overall provision by which uh, God delivers his people. Uh, David goes to, uh, to war uh, and he, he uh, wins a battle. Well, he uses a military uh, force to do it, he uh, he, he goes against Goliath and uh, he uses uh, the sling. Well, he's a good shot with the sling. He practiced with it. He, uh, in a certain sense, it's not accidental that he should uh, hit the giant uh, with the sling. It's a shepherd's weapon. Uh, but you see, nevertheless, in the setting, it becomes uh, uh, part of this subsidiary subject that helps us to see the main subject better. Uh, That is to say, it's God's will that with a very apparently feeble weapon, uh, just uh, five smooth stones in a sling, uh, he's able to overcome a giant who comes to him with such a panoply of armament. uh, So that uh, what happens in the course of uh, uh, God's providence, in what we might regard as a kind of commonplace uh, context, Uh, what happens is nevertheless ordered by God so that it can have a a force uh, which is uh, typological. Now, C.S. Lewis makes an interesting distinction between what he calls a master metaphor and a student metaphor. He says a teacher who's trying to explain something that the student doesn't understand at all and they use a metaphor uh, to give the students some understanding of it. Uh, the idea of a fourth dimension, for example. A teacher in uh, physics might use some illustration, some model that would uh, help a student understand what the, what the mathematical fourth dimension might mean. Now, presumably, the teacher knows a good deal more uh, than the student does about the fourth dimension, and you might say that all the student can gain about the fourth dimension is what the teacher told him in the uh, metaphor. That's, that's the only knowledge he has. Whereas the teacher has much more knowledge. So you see, the metaphor uh, operates differently uh, vis-a-vis the teacher and the student in that situation. Now you see, that's how it is with us. Uh, God reveals himself in many ways metaphorically to typologically. He uses uh, images and symbols to convey the meaning. And in some cases, uh, the only way, uh, indeed you might say in a certain sense it's always true for the deep mysteries of God, but the only way in which we can understand them is uh, to some extent through symbols. Uh, God presents himself as though he were a human being. uh, so that we can understand him, I am speaking now of the anthropomorphisms of Scripture. Uh, but nevertheless, um, that which is revealed is true. All that we can understand of the metaphor, all that we can understand of, of many of the mysteries of the divine being, uh, are expressed metaphorically, and yet they are they are true and they are real revelation of God. Yet, for God himself, who speaks this metaphor to us, he, of course, understands what we can understand only uh, through types and symbols. So there's a certain sense in which, even in the fullness of revelation in Jesus Christ, we are not yet given all that floodlight of revelation that we will have when we get the glory. But even then, it, it... the fullness of the revelation will come to us uh, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we can often paraphrase metaphors in order to explain what they mean. But we don't simply discard the metaphor, even when we explain it. And in preaching and teaching, uh, it's wise not to discard the metaphor. Um, You see, the power of preaching, the emotive power of preaching, uh, is often linked to the very concreteness of the metaphors that we use. Uh, if uh, uh, if the Word of God tells us, like as a father, pitieth his children, so the Lord, pitieth them that fear him, uh, we, we are brought to think of uh, the warmth and love of paternal care on the human level. And then we're told to, uh, to say, uh, uh, What this means to us, the emotive power that this has for us in a heightened way is to be the way in which we understand the love of God. And of course the same thing with uh, the love of uh, uh, a man for a wife as uh, related to the uh, relation of Christ to the Church. The metaphors then can be defined. Uh, Metaphors are not uh, uh, meaningless. They do communicate truth. that can be uh, propositionally stated. But they do have a richness. There is a tension in the metaphor that always carries us beyond. There's uh, always more that's being suggested. So it's wise to reflect on metaphors. Now, again, uh, think of how this applies... uh, To uh, parables, for example, Uh, there was uh, originally uh, the wildest kind of interpretation of parables where any uh, incident uh, in any parable anywhere was made uh, symbolical. Uh, some spiritual reality, origin. Again, you know, did a lot of that sort of thing, and you probably heard preaching along that line uh, regarding, say, the parable of the good Samaritan, where perhaps uh, the uh, the donkey on which uh, the wounded man was put becomes the church, and uh, the two coins that he left to take care of him are the two sacraments. And, uh, 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 All sorts of uh, uh, wild, symbolic uh, meanings are assigned to the the elements in it. Of course, part of the problem there is this uh, substitution view of metaphor, if you will, that uh, metaphor is only one thing for another thing, and not taking account of the the parables as a whole. But then, as parables were better understood, uh, the German... uh, Writer Jureker, particularly, uh, back in the last century, uh, stressed the need for a point of comparison in interpreting parables, and he said that you can interpret the parable only in the light of the tertium comparationis, that is, the third thing in terms of which the parable is to be interpreted. So you don't uh, look for every detail in the parable, you look for the point of the parable, and what it is that is being interpreted. Um, uh, For example, in the parable of the sower, uh, it's uh, not just that there are all these different kinds of uh, uh, fields, uh, different kinds of ground in which the seed can be sown, uh, but there's also the difference uh, in terms of fruitfulness, uh, 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 thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. So the real thrust of the parable is the basic distinction between fruitful ground and unfruitful ground. It's a a double distinction, and the uh, other distinctions are subdivisions of that. So you get the structure of the parable as a whole. However, uh, that too, that principle of Euler that you have to find the the, uh, point of uh, comparison, uh, that also can be carried too far. Because you notice that when Jesus interprets that very parable, uh, he doesn't hesitate to identify uh, point by point the, the different uh, elements. Uh, the, the birds that pick up the seeds have the significance of Satan taking the word out of the hearts of people. So it's clear that uh, in the parables of Jesus, uh, there is a great, great richness of metaphorical structure. And uh, not only is the main point of the parable to be understood in terms of what you m- might describe as a model metaphor, uh, but also the individual parts uh, of the parable uh, may have significance. How then do we interpret them? Well, uh, we must reflect on the elements of the parable to see uh, where they have background in the history of Revelation, where they have background in terms of God's revelation. And uh, where Jesus uses a term that has a clear significance uh, when he speaks of uh, light, for example, uh, it's not improper to, to take account of that because Jesus is speaking in that broad uh, context. so we must take account uh, of the details of uh, metaphorical use, but neither may we ignore the the main thrust of that which is being presented. Uh, Another uh, instance of that sort of thing. Think of the symbolic presentation of Jesus uh, at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Uh, You may have seen uh, efforts uh, to paint the Christ of that vision that John had. And I dare say if you have, you've been uh, uh, struck by their bizarre uh, character. Uh, Certainly uh, the more modern, uh, or more abstract perhaps I should say, the more abstract an artist is, uh, uh, the, more, uh, the better he's prepared to handle that uh, vision of Christ in Revelation. Uh, because you see, uh, the various, what we're given there uh, is not uh, an overall uh, view, it's not a gestalt in which we have an overall vision of Christ seen as a unity. What you really have are elements taken from the symbolism of the Old Testament uh, to describe Jesus Christ. Uh, The white hair, of course, refers back to the vision of the ancient days in Daniel. Uh, The uh, feet uh, glowing uh, as uh, with fire represent, of course, the, the judgment of Christ, the sword coming from his mouth. Uh, these various elements are like a kind of mosaic, uh, which give us a picture of Christ, and they are, they are to be understood in terms of their uh, particular uh, reference, and not in terms of an overall impression. Well then, in exegesis, as we work with the metaphoric, We must always, in the first place, establish the commonplaces in which the metaphor exists. If you're going to interpret any metaphorical language, you have to take seriously the cultural and linguistic context. What does it mean? If the Lord is called the shepherd, what were the practices of the shepherd? Uh, Was it true that kings and rulers were called shepherds in those days? Yes, of course they were. You see, these things we, we have to take account of, and in terms of the history of the Bible, we must take the history with full seriousness. What happened? What went on? Uh, we're not just looking for you see, we're not just looking for uh, occasional little gems of imagery that we can pick up as we go by. We're looking to see what the story tells us, uh, what it means. And only in the light of that meaning can we project uh, a further depth of meaning. Uh, which is the, the prospective aspect looking forward to when uh, the Lord uh, himself comes. Establish the commonplaces in which the metaphor exists. Establish the scriptural context of the figure. That is, we're concerned about the Old Testament usage of the figure. We're concerned about the continuity of the figure, if it's a reoccurring figure in Scripture. I think of the concept of the house of God or the dwelling of God and think of how that stretches through the whole Old Testament. Uh, Eden as the dwelling of God, the, uh, uh, Bethel where God reveals himself to Jacob, uh, the uh, altars where God, uh, in which God's present to the patriarchs, uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness, the temple in uh, Zion the uh, prophetic use of the images of the temple in Ezekiel. And you see, when we come to the New Testament, we realize that this concept of a dwelling of God, of a temple of God, uh, that it has a, a continuity in the history of redemption. It prepares us for the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. So we establish the scriptural context of the figure, And then we note the qualifications in the description and the use of the metaphor. Uh, This is important. Even though you've heard me say that a metaphor is suggestive, is rich, yet, as an exegete, you are not concerned to discover all possible implications of the metaphor. You are concerned to see what the metaphor means in its particular context. And therefore, when Paul uses the body of Christ figure, you must be careful to see how he uses it. And, uh, for example, when he says uh, Christ is the head of the body, uh, you might suppose at first that he has first in view the body figure, the church is the body of Christ, in the sense that the church is the torso and Christ is the head. So that uh, uh, Christ the head is... uh, Join to uh, church the torso at the neck, and I've heard that figure used in preaching. I've heard people say that just as a, a head, just as a body cannot exist without a head, uh, so a head cannot exist without a body. Uh, C.S. Lewis's novel, "That Hideous Strength," to the contrary, notwithstanding, I don't know if you've read that book, but. When he meets the head, it is a head, but uh, maintained by, um, uh, of course, uh, all the life support systems of modern science. But, uh, you see, that's not the way Paul uses it, because when, in First Corinthians 12, he talks about the, the body of Christ. He talks about members of the body, and he mentions among the members of the body the nose, the eyes, the ears... So he's, thinking, he's obviously thinking of the whole body as the church, including the, the members of the body that are part of the head. Uh, so when he speaks of Christ as the head, he's thinking of Christ as the head of the body in the sense that the husband is the head of the, the wife. And the, the, the figure of headship is a distinct figure in the Old Testament and in the New as well. Uh, the roche, uh, the, the head, is... Uh, uh, that, that term is as common in Hebrew as it would be in English, uh, you know, who heads up the organization. Christ is the head of the church, uh, not in the sense that he's an extension of the body, but in the sense that he's in control over the body. Now, you also have to note how there is an interrelatedness of metaphors. Uh, the the metaphors of eating and drinking, you know, applying to uh, water and to bread Uh, the actions. uh, Actions may be symbolical, of course, as well as substances. Well, now, how about the great question? Uh, Are metaphors to be interpreted literally or figuratively? You know, it's interesting that there's such a thing as a kind of literalist interpretation of figurative language. Uh, But There are obviously degrees and shadings of metaphorical use. Uh, The people of God figure. Is it a figure or is it just a description of the people of God? Well, in a sense, uh, it it may shade from one to the other. Uh, The significance of history, it's literal, it really happens, and yet it can have a figurative dimension. So there can be a, a fulfillment beyond the literal, uh, which involves more, but not less. So that to see that there is a, a typological uh, form is not to deny that there is little literal history that is involved. And the key to this is necessarily the focus in Jesus Christ. We well, see it is in Christ that we have in principle the fulfillment of all of the truth of God, all of the revelation of God, all of the reality of our salvation. And that's the theology that the the word of God leads us to. So that it is as we interpret in terms of Jesus Christ that we have the safe key for understanding even the way in which we handle uh, the metaphorical. There are abounding analogies in God's creation. And he made the world as a world that, uh, uh, in which we live uh, where there is intense richness in the fullness of the revelation of God. And that means that in our preaching, we can take advantage of the metaphorical, of the images, of the emotive power that uh, metaphors have, and of the instructional power that comes uh, through a presentation uh, of the metaphorical.